On last week's program, we spoke with an expert on the Secret Service. Vince Palomara, his new book, Who's Who in the Secret Service, gives you biographies and stories surrounding 100 different individuals who have been part of the Secret Service, dating back to, well, I guess, early 20th century. Uh, we didn't have time to talk about the full gamut of what we could talk about, that's for sure. So we decided to have Vince come back and tell the most, I think, hair-raising stories that we can relate to the, what happened to the Secret Service, those events surrounding that of the Kennedy assassination in 1963. So it's my great pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Vince Palomara. Thank you very much, Doug. Well, Vince, we left off talking about uh, Reagan uh, last week, and there's so many things more you could say about presidential protection. And before we get into Kennedy, actually, let's do a little bit. You, you talked to a lot of different agents and corresponded with them, and a couple of them in particular struck me reading your book are, well, let's just say a couple of real characters. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these colorful agents? Sure. Marty Venker, he came out with a book called Confessions of an Ex-Secret Service Agent, and he recently passed away. He was amazing. Uh, he was one of those guys, most people think of the Secret Service as real stoic and humorless and unsmiling. Well, this was a guy with a bathing sense of humor. Maybe I read that book, was co-written by George Rush, against Confessions of an Ex-Secret Service Agent. He should have been a stand-up comedian. And at the same time he was a Secret Service Agent, there was part of him that was like a rebel and a free spirit. And he ended up quitting the agency early and becoming a disc jockey in New York. So all the disco texts in the late 70s and early 80s, that was him out there playing disco music <laughs> and, you know, all that, and scratching the records and all that, you know, that was his big thing. And uh, he was just one of those guys, a rebel with the cause, so to speak, and he went around to different field agencies and field offices in the agency, and uh, eventually was uh, part of the White House detail as well. But he always was like one of those guys that yearned for something more than just being a government agent. So you've got good stories, a good background in some of the um, presidents. At the same time, you got to see, like, wow, here's a guy that uh, wasn't... He, he breaks the, the myth of these... He, he makes them human, so I really recommend that book to people. The other one's Brooks Keller, who's a legend within Secret Service circles. He was unbelievable. Um, turns out every member of his family died at the age of 50, all the men, I should say. So he realized that, hey, I'm in my 40s, I don't got too much longer, so I'm going to like live life to its fullest. He ended up passing away, I think it was age 44, ironically. I don't know what it was about men and his family they didn't live long. So consequently, he made it his uh, duty, so to speak, to harass all his uh, supervisors and all the field offices. And one of his favorite things to do was he would buy a hat for the supervisor that looked just like the one he had, but he would sneak it and make it slightly smaller. Then a week later, slightly smaller, slightly smaller. So the guy started to lose his mind. Like, what's wrong with my head? It's freaking it's big. What's wrong? And so he's thinking like, <laughs> and he, one time he took a, a he took like a, a, a ferry back from Europe rather than taking a plane across the Secret Service, tons of money just to say I could do it, just to be a rebel. Wait, wait, this was this, this the guy that was ordered to come home and they said, come right home. So he took an eight-day voyage on the Queen Mary. Yes, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. He, to this day, he's still a legend, Brooks Keller. The more bankers know within circles that knew him, but Brooks Keller is an agency legend for being so rebellious. And, yeah, unbelievable. But yeah, he ended up dying at 44. All the men in his family wow. did not live long. Well, Vince, let's go back to November 22nd, 1963. You are you are considered to be the authority on the Secret Service and surrounding the uh, the JFK case. Uh, I was struck, and I and I studied this for many years myself. I was struck in reading your book by 
one thing that just jumped out at me, which was that if you look at the Secret Service agents, men's train, men trained to, trained to protect the president, in the motorcade as the shots rung out, and you've got, for starters, four notable guys who thought shot or shots came from the grassy knoll. Forrest Sorrells in front of the presidential limo, Roy Kellerman sitting two seats in front of JFK, Paul Landis in the, in the car behind, Lem Johnson, a couple cars behind that. They all thought the shots came from the notorious grassy knoll. Yes, yeah, so you got trained. It's not just you know people, conspiracy theorists or eyewitnesses who were mistaken. These are men that constantly had to qualify with weapons, handguns, shoulder weapons, automatic rifles, everything. And so these men, and, and, and back then they had training too. It wasn't like the other like training today is unbelievable. Back then. They were constantly uh, going to Maryland and, and, and doing their firearms training. So for these men, it would be hard for them to be fooled, in other words. So for people that are advents of conspiracy and shots from both directions, there's more powerful ones for you. And then you go in for that, Sam Kinney, the driver of the fog car, spoke to several times. He was adamant that the back of President Kennedy's head blew off a fatal shot. Now, uh, you know, entrance wounds make small wounds, exit wounds make large wounds, and now, the, the, uh, the paradox was he thought Oswald was a lone shooter, but he also thinks it was a conspiracy. And at the same time, before he can catch your breath, he thought that, you know, he said the back of the head blew off. <laughs> and he said he, he had that piece on the C-130 plane hit back to Washington, D.C. Yeah, I wanted to, to, to talk about that. Your description in the book really struck me when I read it, because you and I corresponded briefly back in the 1990s about about this this issue. Um I'd spoken with a man who was in the Air Force who'd, who'd, who'd flown this, this uh, it was part of the crew flying the, the limo back on the cargo plane, and he gave a description of going down and seeing a little bit of bone in the car that exactly corresponds to what you got out of Sam Kinney, who was on that flight. They saw a little piece back there, and they said it looked like a little piece of flower pot, which they, that they thought was the president's, was, was part of his skull, and it kind of freaked him out. Yeah, that's exactly what Sam said, and Vince Gulo basically he said, yes, I'm very familiar with the facts that you outlined them. You know, everything I said, Sam Kinney said to me, I gave in detail in this letter to him, and he wrote back, yes, I'm very familiar with the facts. I've only spoken this to federal uh, officials, and unless you have some viable reason why you're contacting me, don't contact me again on this. So I was like, whoa, but at the same time, he corroborated. He didn't say, oh, this is hogwash or whatnot. He corroborated what Sam had to say. We've got, we've got four witnesses saying Grassy Knoll. We've got Roy Kellerman, who also thought that... He also said... He was rather adamant when he spoke to the Warren Commission, and he's, I guess he was in charge of, the, of the, the, the Secret Service in the limo. He's sitting right next to the driver, and he said there was a flurry of shots. They came in, bam, bam, and there's like no way one man could do that. He was quite, quite specific about that. Yeah, he says there's got to be more than three shots, gentlemen. You have a different answer if you look at the films. A flurry of shells came in. His drawing to the hospital committee shows the rear of the head gone. During his uh, sworn testimony under you know, Arlen Specter, the Warren Commission, he said the same thing. The right rear of the head, he used the phrase removed, but the same thing. It's, it's removed. It's gone. And William Greer also, the driver of the limousine, also said the same thing with the right rear area. And uh, William Greer did not believe the single bullet theory. And it turns out that Clint Hill and Paul Landis, each the fog car, also in both in the same year, 2016, both came forward so they did not believe a single bullet theory, which is the keystone to Lee Harvey also being the sole assassin. So it's pretty amazing, even at this late juncture, that they would admit that. Well, I'm very keen to talk with you about, about Bill Greer. But before we do that, let's talk about probably the most, obviously, most famous 
Secret Service agent on that day, the man who jumped off the follow-up car, Clint Hill, he ran to, he's very visible in all the films, running to the presidential limo to try and to try and get between, you know, a gunman and JFK. He arrives too late. He he it's a rather famous episode. He also said the back the second he got there, he could see the back of the head had been removed. And so, I mean, again, consistent with a shot from the front. But but talk a little bit about Clint Hill because he's uh, he's quite a story. You know, Clint Hill, a lot of people make him to be some sort of hero. And at first glance, it appears to be because, oh, he valiantly jumped to the back of the car and whatnot. But then you find out some more of the details, which I found out. And some of this is new and some of this isn't. But I'd say it's the average person might not know this, is that he was one of the nine agents, nine agents that drank the night before the assassination. And that is grounds for removal from the Secret Service. That's right in the you know, Lord's Mission Volumes, Volume 18. They have an excerpt of the Secret Service manual. Chief Riley, when he testified under oath to the Lord's Mission, admitted as such, but he coughed out and said, well, I didn't want to stigmatize these gentlemen. But the bottom line is, Clint Hill was one of the agents that drank the night before. He was late in the limousine. He was assigned to Jacqueline Kennedy as part of the first lady detail of Paul Landis. So he didn't even protect Kennedy, and when he got there, Kennedy was already dead. If you look at the films and photos and you get brutally honest about it, Clint Hill didn't even touch Jacqueline Kennedy. He didn't push her back. Jacqueline got in and out of the limousine of her own volition. She got out, she grabbed a piece of skull, got back in. So if you really want to be brutally honest about it, Clint Hill did what I say in the book, the equivalent of like a foul tip or struck out swinging. At least he tried to do something. He does throw himself on top of the president in the back of the limo. Up to basically sometime in the late 90s, early millennium, Clint Hill was still one of those agents that was saying that we should have been there, we should have been there in the back of the car. But that's the elephant in the room we got to talk about, Vince, yes. in terms of, of, of this whole issue of the protection of the president. Uh, there are at least photos earlier in the motorcade where Clint Hill does jump off the follow-up car, and he actually does climb onto the presidential limo. Uh, on the other hand, the man who was his corresponding person on the other side never does that for JFK, and there's quite a controversy over um, over this whole issue of why nobody did that. There was a story, which I think you debunked quite thoroughly, where some people said, well, Kennedy told us he didn't want anybody on the back of the limo, and I think you pretty pretty thoroughly established that that, that just never happened. Right, but it, it's a myth that still raises its uh, ugly head to this day, and straight would have it. He ordered the agents off the car, and one of the big uh, posts, you know, Composed my research was I found out this was not true. Um, the head of the White House detail, this is the number one agent, Gerald Bain, B E H N. I spoke to him in September 27, 92. He said, I don't remember Kennedy ever saying anything about not having AIDS on the back of the car. If you look at the newsreels, you will see AIDS on, on there from time to time. And I just got silent. I couldn't believe it. I started stuttering. I said, Well, um, yeah, like the trip to Berlin. Yes, the Berlin's one of many. Yeah, there's, there's no trips to that. I just couldn't believe it. I said, after I calmed down a few minutes, I always think I could defense attorney. I said, myself, you know, that's amazing. He's the number one agent. He's trying to totally loosen and whatnot. Loosen, but you could argue, all oh, this one agent floating in the breeze. Where's the corroboration on this? And the corroboration came in droves. To the corresponding days, weeks, months, and years after, it was like they were reading cue cards. One after another, were telling me the same thing, either in writing or on the phone or both. And again, a total stranger. They're all living in different areas of the country. 
you know, the chance to compare notes and, and there's no axe to grind and they're just telling me the same thing. Well, yeah, Prince Kennedy was a very nice man. They never interfered with actions at all. Oh, that's baloney. He never ordered us off the car. So this, the elephant in the room, to use your phrase, is, well, the Warren Commission said the Secret Service was telling them, oh, President Kennedy ordered us off the car. In fact, this happened the trip before Texas and Florida, and that's the reason why agents weren't there, so we're off the hook. Basically, what it boils down to is they were trying to say Kennedy didn't want us by the car, so don't blame us for the assassination. It's not our fault. He was there. And then you find out, wait a minute, it's a Secret Service decision. Exactly. We know that's not true. We know it's a Secret Service decision. Does this not imply that there was a deliberate lapse in coverage? I just want to say at the offset, I'm a big admirer of the Secret Service. I'm just also a harsh critic of November 22nd, 1963, and that's not being a Monday morning quarterback. It's basically based on interviews, primary research, you know, putting it all together and comparing and contrasting. And what's sad thing is President Kennedy, whether it was a conspiracy or not, I believe it was a conspiracy, he should have lived, he should have survived House. It should have been an assassination attempt like President Reagan at most. These men failed him in the, in the worst way, and, and that insult to injury, Kennedy was blamed for his own assassination. You know, they, they blamed him for not having the motorcycles by the car, not having the eats on the car, not having the bubble top on the car, for um, having the trademark as the uh, you know, selection site of the motorcade, and the list goes on. But you know, the, the central thing is proximity. It's always about the agents being you know, the proximity of the president. You, know, you look at the attempts on Ford, and you know, both attempts, really, and you look at the attempt on Reagan. And even the, going back to November 1st, 1950, the attempt on Truman, and probably a lot of other attempts we don't even know about that never made the papers because they're afraid of copycats. It was always the proximity of the agents that were the life and death reason why you know, the president survived or didn't survive. The important thing is when you look at the films and photos of the, of the Tampa trip, they're on the back of the car. It turned out this was two years right. later this came out. Right. It was the longest domestic motorcade Kennedy ever undertook. It was like four times the length of the Dallas motorcade. It's like 28 miles long, and agents were on the back of the car the whole time. And a lot more than that, too. All multi-story buildings, rooftops were guarded by armed sheriff's department, uh, military police lined the streets and faced the crowd. The police were intermingled in the crowd. Whole nine yards. You can just compare Tampa so four days later, the Texas trip, and it's greatly lacking. Gerald Bain, the head of the White House detail, adamantly denied that President Kennedy ever ordered these up the car. And when all his you know, comrades were telling me the same thing, you know, all the brass, yeah. it looked like these uh, privates. It was Floyd Boring, the number two agent, uh, one of the top shift leaders of the White House detail, Art Godfrey, Sam Kinney, uh, Joe the Fawfar. This goes on and on. They're all telling me the same thing. And so the 64 million dark question is, wait a minute now. Why weren't they there? Why are they blaming it on Kennedy? And that's one of the things that I still go back and forth on. It looks pretty sinister, or you can try to whittle it down that they were trying to cover their behinds. There's another major discovery in mine was I found out that multi-story buildings were regularly guarded from FDR through the JFK era. This is based on newspaper articles, interviews, Secret Service documents, and again, just the trip before in Tampa, 28-mile motorcade, all multi-story buildings were guarded. Go you know, to trips in Nashville, Chicago, Paris, the list goes on. And sometimes they even had a helicopter watching the rooftops like they did in Chicago in March of 63. I, I got to ask you, Vince, what, you, you were the one, I think, one of the first people to stumble on this fact. There's footage at Love Field where they appear to be waving off one of the agents. They're giving him a, a contrary command. He's got his arms in the air like, what? And I, I'm just wondering, uh, what, 
How do you put that all together? Do you think that there was a change in Made at Love Field on the protection at the at the Secret Service direction? Yes, here's what I think. This will your listeners so they don't think this is wild and wacky. Here's what I think. I think the Secret Services Institution was and is just fine. 95 to 99% of these men and women were and are honorable people doing their job. We are only talking literally three people, and I named them in my book and even in my first book, Survivor's Guild, three agents that compromised everybody else who was merely following orders. They're leaving Love Field. I discovered this video in 1991. It's WFAA, which is the Dallas-Fort Worth affiliate. I found the raw footage. I couldn't believe my eyes. And as the motor came leaving Love Field, there's a voiceover from the local uh, newscasters and whatnot. You see an agent in the fall car turn out to be Henry Roberts rise in the scene he's gesturing, and one of the agents on the side next to Kennedy turns out to be Don Lockyer, throws his hands up, not once, not twice, but three times, an obvious disgust, but like the universal sign of what gives. It turns out Paul Landis made room for him in the fall car. He throws his leg back over and makes room on the fall car running board, and Don Lawton just stands there. Well, Lawton was supposed to be the guy, Clint Hill's mirror, wasn't he supposed to be the guy behind Kennedy? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, Jack Reddy was supposed to be there, too, and he never budged, never budged. And, and what I think was down to is Emory Roberts, basically neutralized the agents in that car. And, and it turned out Emory Roberts had said that he was one of the agents that was concerned about President Kennedy's personal life. This came out in 1997 in a book, Seymour uh, Hersh, Dark Side of Camelot. Four agents of Kennedy's White House detail talked about their anger and concern over President Kennedy's personal life. And then lo and behold, this agent, Emory Roberts, is telling the other agents, you know, get away from the car, move away. You know, he's recalling them. Another agent was Henry Ripka, who was also jogging beside the car. He appears in the news wheels before the video, the, the famous video that you were talking about. But you can actually see two agents, and they're both called away. Sam Kinney told me and corroborated something. He said that the agents were ordered not to move by Emory Roberts. Couldn't believe wow. it when he told me this. Yeah. Ordered it, not it, to it, move. Ordered not to move. <laughs> After the shots are starting. After the shots are starting. Here's how it pulls down to you. Harry Livingston, the late Harry Livingston, came out with a book called High Trees, and there's a, there's a sentence in that book that rocked my world back in 1988. It, it says, Henry Roberts or the agents not to move. I'm like, where is he getting this? There's no corroboration. There's no footnote. Always stuck in my craw. Like, where is he getting this? So when I read that to Sam Kinney, Sam Kinney goes, oh, yeah, exactly right, and I'm involved in that, too. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, Henry Roberts, he was afraid of the other agents. You know, he saw Clint Hill take off. He didn't want the other agents to get run over, so he ordered everybody not to move. And I tried to, you know, move the, the fall car into place. No one else get run over. I ran this across some contemporary agents like Dan Emmett, who guarded Obama and Bush and whatnot. And he said, that doesn't float. That, that's wrong. Agents are supposed to think twice about their own safety. This was a lunch fork covering the vacuum. Right. He right, thought right. that was totally dubious. He wow. also said he did not believe that he thought that was total hokum about agents being ordered for the president. The presidents have more things to concern about themselves. They're not thinking about the agents or whether they're close by or not on the back of the car. But he said that's hogwash. I can tell you right now, being a member of the presidential protective division, this story of Sam Kenny told you, I wouldn't believe that at all. Not to think about Henry Roberts or the agents, but to think about the excuse that was used to all justify right. it. A lot of our listeners have no doubt interest, interest in this case and have taken a look at uh, some of the, the footage that's available, things on YouTube, as you mentioned. If people take a look at the Zapruder film, and an awful lot of people have, uh, they will be astonished by what 
they see, which is that the shots have started. The president is obviously wounded. And by, as you, as you document in the book, Roy Kellerman is saying, let's get out of here by that point. The driver of the vehicle, William Greer, instead slows the car down. He does not accelerate. He turns around and he is visible on the Zapruder film quite clearly looking back at the boss as the fatal wounds are struck. Then he turns around and dry, and then hits the gas. It's amazing. It's amazing. That was basically my, my starting point for everything. Before I even did a lot of primary research and interviews and whatnot, in the very late 80s, very early 90s, I started to notice something that I had a you know, really nice copy of the Burger film. And I said, wait a minute. Bill Greer, he looks back not once but twice. I've yes. read his books about how he looks back, but he looks back twice. Then I read the sequence of events. I'm like, my God, the shooting begins. He looks back once. Turns out Roy Kellerman in his sworn testimony says, get out of line, we've been hit. Greer disobeys a direct command and his own common sense. He sees Kennedy's head. He turns back and stares, and only when Kennedy's hit in the head does he face forward. He denied all that under oath to the Warren Commission, lied under oath to the Warren Commission. Right. Okay, and it gets worse than that. Uh, people like Gerald Posner and Vince Bugliosi, if we thought well act alone, even said that Bill Greer was solely responsible for the success of the assassination because they believe Oswald act alone. But he said, well, if he would have hit the gas, history would have been, you know, changed. Well, Vince, it's hard to argue with that, isn't it? <laughs> even though I don't, I don't like to agree with uh, Gerald Posner, but it's pretty hard to argue that if he tromped on the gas at the key moment, it would have been a lot harder to hit the president. Exactly. And Bill Greer had a lot of remorse and regret that day, that day. But by that night, he was already blaming the president. Well, sometimes we were instructed by the president to slow down, he said during an interview. So during the day, he was crying at Parkland Hospital with Jacqueline Kennedy. Bill Greer, Roy Kellerman, and Jacqueline Kennedy were all interviewed by William Manchester in uh, 1964-65. And they all, you know, based all off interviews. And Bill Greer was very remorseful. Like Kenny O'Donnell, Dave Powers wrote the fall apart. So, oh, yeah, if, if the driver would have hit the gas, Kennedy would have lived, and the driver was very remorseful. So, again, he changed his tune. Well, Bill Greer died in 1985. He had only had one son, only had one child, for that matter, Richard. And this is another electric moment, one of several. I called him out of the blue in 1990, and I, how you doing, sir? I was doing research, blah, blah, blah. And this is before I even had a book, and I was literally knowing, knowing who right. Vince Palmer was. And I said, hey, so what's your father think of President Kennedy? It was total silence on the phone. I'm like, oh, geez. So I said, Ben, think of something. Think of something. So I quickly changed the subject to, like, your president, you're, you're about father. He guarded several presidents, didn't you? Oh, yeah. He was there for Truman and Eisenhower. So, well, sir, you know what, Tom? If you don't mind, what did your father think of President Kennedy? A slight pause because, well, we're Methodists. JFK was Catholic. Wow. Wow. What is that about? Wow. So as groups for the bill for yet another agent who might have harbored something anger or ill feelings toward Kennedy, and all it takes a few seconds of inaction. It's not the pulling of triggers. It's the uh, letting the triggers uh, do their job, so to speak. We, we should mention, George Hickey, you, 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 you went out of your way to not contact George Hickey because of the book or the based on the ideas of, of, of sharpshooter Howard Donahue that Hickey accidentally discharged the AR-15 and was responsible for Kennedy's murder, and, and the film shows that, that that didn't happen. Well, there's a film, no relation to the actor, called Charles Bronson, but there's the Charles Bronson motion picture yes, film, it, and the yes. amateur by that name. Yes. And you can see 
George Hickey is not fired because it's sort of a You can actually see the assassination in his film. He's not firing a weapon. Right. He is to say that all the agents adamantly denied it. More important than those agents, because we can say they're suspicious, Dave Powers adamantly denied it was any truth to that. Well, people have pointed but, out that an AR-15 has a report that is so unbelievably loud that it would simply be unmistakable. People would not have, could not possibly have, have mistaken that for, you know, other shots. Exactly. In defense of Howard Donahue, <laughs> who I spoke with back in the 1990s, he wasn't crazy. His understanding of of the medical evidence as it had been presented to the public then, his, his theory that he put together wasn't as crazy as it was made out to be. It's wrong, but it wasn't insane. I just wanted to get that out I there. I agree. No, you know what, Doug, you and I are 100% in agreement. Ironically, there's some really good ballistic evidence that shows that Oswald could have done it. Well, what it was was Howard Donahue was, for lack of a better way of putting it, was a government man. So he tried to reach out and find innocent excuse for this ballistic evidence that showed Oswald did not go. Oh, yeah, I spoke to Howard a couple times. Howard Donahue proves the fatal shot couldn't have come from Oswald's rifle. So that's amazing. Well, that, that, yeah, he was again. There was there was some merit to his work. Well, Vince, in, in wrapping up, I know that you've you've uh, pretty much exonerated the Secret Service as an agency, but do note there are some individuals within it who, had they in the key moments withdrawn uh, the protection that was needed, could have been you know, facilitators of the tragedy. You mentioned Emery Roberts. Uh, we've talked about Bill Greer, and I think there's a couple other guys you would consider suspicious. There's three suspects, Bill Greer and Emery Roberts, who spoke of. The third and final one, and there's footnotes because there's a few others I'm suspicious of, they're just not main suspects, so to speak, would be Floyd Boring. Floyd Boring was the number two agent of the White House detail, the direct assistant to Gerald Bain, head of the White House detail. Floyd Boring, as it turned out, just again, this didn't come out until years later. It turned out that uh, Floyd Boring was the planner of the Texas trip from the Secret Service's point of view. I mean, he's an honorable man for the most part, but he dropped the ball with Kennedy, and it's either it's gross negligence or it's something else. Well, unfortunately, we, we are out of time, Vince. But let's talk again sometime. I, I would like to, you know, I, I'm going to try and get a lot of people in this case together and just uh, ask at this late date, uh, well, 50 plus, 55 years later, if, um, if people think that, you know, we're still going to uh, get the truth one day. I guess I guess my my last quick question to you would be, if you can summarize it, would be, are you optimistic we're going to ever find out what really happened? The short answer would be no, but the good news is I think we do know a lot already. We just will never agree. It's not that we'll never know, we'll never agree. I think that we could prove a case for conspiracy, but actually who was behind it and who the trigger men were and, get, and making that palatable to the American public and the U.S. government as a whole other ball of wax. That's what I'd say. All right, we've been speaking with Vince Palomera. He's the author of Survivor's Guilt, and we've been speaking about his most recent book, Who's Who in the Secret Service. Vince, thank you so much for speaking with us, and uh, again, I hope that we will uh, we'll talk again. Sounds good. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We wish all of you out there a happy Thanksgiving and look forward to seeing you again next week. And we'd add that you do have an option tomorrow on Black Friday. Stay home. It's not a holiday. It's a marketing stunt.